Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, I'm just trying to make you nervous. <laughs> to that end, my guest is Michael J. Seidlinger. He's the author of numerous works of provocative experimental fiction, including My Pet Serial Killer and Falter Kingdom, but it's his latest novel, Anybody Home, that's causing a real word-of-mouth stir in the horror world. Anybody Home is a cold, brutal, cynical examination of perhaps the scariest horror scenario of all, home invasion. I'll let Michael tell you more, but suffice it to say, this book cares nothing for your feelings. We talk about why home invasion is so singularly frightening, about the role of movies and lenses in our hyper-surveillant culture. We disagree on the current state of experimental fiction, and we hear perhaps the most startling answer ever given to the question of where did the idea for this book come from? All that, plus my rantings on the morality of torture porn, some really geeky video game chat, heavy metal metaphors, and an afterword containing some important questions for the future of this show. As ever, you can support the show and what I do by signing up for Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Follow on Instagram or Twitter at talkscaredpod. And if you can find the time, please leave a review. But now, come with me to the scene of a vicious crime. A random house on a random street. It could even be yours. Let's talk scared. Hi, Michael, and, well, a warm welcome to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm good. I'm uh, actually not jet-lagged. Flew in from Brooklyn to L.A., so, like, you know, you're getting me right at the top of this tour, this crazy tour thing that I'm doing, so... But I'm, I'm alive. I'm actually, you know, full energy and hyped to be here, so, yeah. Well, all's that's good. cool. I, I get to talk to you before you exhaust yourself with the same questions over and over again, that's always... <laughs> Yeah, and lose my voice and all that other stuff. Yep, yep. Right, so you're traveling. So I, I know you mentioned on Twitter today that you are in an Airbnb, which means you're essentially mm-hmm. in someone else's home. I am. And that's very appropriate and a little more sinister in your case than it would be for anyone else because your new novel, Anybody Home, is all about being very much inside other people's homes. <laughs> now, normally... I do a bit of a preamble about my reaction to the book and what it did for me and to me. And But in this case, I think all of that is going to come up again and again, loud and clear. So let's just jump straight in with your introduction, if you will, to Anybody Home. What do we need to know? Right. So Anybody Home is essentially a kind of first, second person monologue, wherein a seasoned home invader, someone who's done it before, maybe multiple times, recounts not only their successes, but also their techniques to you, the reader. So the reader is placed in the position of a hopeful invader, someone who wants to follow in the footsteps of every other home invasion you've heard about, or, you know, maybe haven't heard about, you know, for every uh, Sharon Tate slash, you know, funny game slash the strangers kinds of, you know, of home invasions that we see end up on the screen. How many of those are out there that are home invasions that have failed, that are never talked about and sensationalized by the media. So in this book, it puts the reader in the perspective, 
literally in the shoes of a new home invader that wants to end up in the annals of, of home invasion history. And they've enlisted this mysterious narrator, this teacher, if you will, with a lot of experience to walk you through it step by step by step from initial casing of uh, the house to the pull off to the aftermath, everything and all of the above. That's great because I know a, a good number of my listeners are utterly terrified of the home invasion trope. So now they have been fully warned. <laughs> uh, but let's start there with fear because it's a broad question this to start with. But why do you think the concept of, of home invasion is so uniquely frightening, Part- particularly in this kind of psychotic, malicious horror version of the event? You know, it's right. not a smash and grab, it's a you know, it's thought of thing. It seems to haunt people far more than the idea of being chased through the woods or, or even more than being taken somewhere else by a bad person. Yeah, the, first and foremost, like the fear, the palpable fear of the home invasion really roots itself in the fact that it's taking place in that one area that normally as human beings, we find it our sanctuary. Even if we are in a broken home and have maybe you know, there's toxic parents, toxic siblings, any the, the situation at home itself is tumultuous. Generally, you go home to relax. You go home to, go, to know that that space that you inhabit is your own. So the fear of the home invasion is such that something outside is breaking that that sanctuary and is not only doing that but coming into there of, of their own free will or of its own free will and essentially destroying that that semblance of safety mm. um and honestly there's very little that scares me and like I, I get fascinated by all types of horror cosmic horror and all the different psych horror and everything but there's very few tropes that really scare the crap out of me except for home invasion uh <laughs> but i think that's that's why I, I almost completely know why home invasion scares people so much because it's almost a no-go i just i it's, it's almost this thing that that's too real you know when when someone tweets or, or talks about something on a public forum they, that really gets down to the psychological response of whatever it is they're talking about a lot of people will respond oh drag me or oh too real or, you know, like people will turn them, like kind of recoil. And I mean, that's what good horror does anyway. But with like home invasion specifically, when it's done well, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. You know, it's going to be maybe a memorable one. It's going to make you think about it. But at the end of the day, you know, as a des- desensitized, numb, 30 something year old, that's just like more afraid of his own bills uh, and having to pay and figure out how to pay them versus any kind of horror, like home invasion is like, the one thing that still freaks me out. And that's what drove me more or less to examining the reasons why uh so that's the long-winded way to to kind of dance around your initial uh, <laughs> question about it yeah it's like you've done this before no i because it's interesting because there's a lot of violence and a lot of horrible things in this book but there are a lot of violence in a lot of books you know there's a lot of violent situations yep. in horror and it just it just i mean i'm reiterating it i'm repeating myself but it does just seem that the violence that is done to people during a home invasion of a horror stripe doesn't seem mm-hmm. to be where the fear is. Because like I say, the, the actual severity and extremity of the violence is no different than in a torture porn movie. It's no different than, in a, you know, a, a cannibal movie, a slasher movie. It's the same level. But there's something about the fact that it's in your own home that is a different oh, totally. form of violation. And that, I find that fascinating. 
Yeah, right. Like, I mean, and you, we've we talked a little off the, you know, just like chatting before this about like your background in this. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I can understand why it's even more fascinating for you. And it's it's fascinating for me too. Like, I really think it's about the setting, the construct of it, right? Like, I'm gonna use I just, off the top of my head a Serbian film that torture porn, like out of this world, just like. It, it, kind of you get so you're not even really frightened so much as grow like grossed out mm-hmm. by what happens in that but it mm-hmm. is like really pushing the boundaries at least back in the day of what you can do with torture porn and like it didn't elicit the same response of say funny games did to me um michael hennicky's uh, both of them actually the the frame for frame remake with michael pitt was I, I i like it just as much as the original one but that thing unsettled me and truly kind of got under my skin more than like some torture porn thing and i really think it has to do with the palpability of the situation like i can't place myself in any full and most people won't be able to place themselves in any torture porn scenario there's an element of escape escapism as a result of it so no matter how dark and how depraved you can still walk away from it with the sense of we don't you don't no longer have to suspend the disbelief right Mm -hmm. but with with home invasions and and like that kind of horror that makes it so that it seems like it's right in your backyard and really leaves it in this hey you know it could be happening right now on the other side of in the apartment right next to you it could be it could happen to you after you get off of this podcast someone might, might be planning out their own invasion of your own i don't know if you live in an apartment or a house i don't know man but i'm just saying like <laughs> it's so it's so real that as a result we are it, we we can't we're backed in a real corner right so that kind of horror naturally will have it will elicit even more of a response so when you drop anything any kind of torture any kind of situation that causes hurt harm but, you know, in the physical, psychological, it doesn't matter. Any kind of sense, it's going to be amplified, you know? It, it, oh, I have a good, like, sort of example just to, like, I guess, like, drive it home, right? So you listen to, like, a lot of metal, and, and they, all, they have all this, like, polyrhythms, and they're really heavy, and they get heavier, and they growl, and they have, like, these long seven-minute epic songs. And then you have a hardcore band that plays a two-and-a-half-minute thing that's raw, and the guy's screaming his brains out, and it's fast, and it's raw. And, you know, like, there's, like, almost like they just wrote, uh, wrote it and recorded it in their garage. Between the two, the one that's going to actually capture the intended anger and, and, and depth of that aggression is going to be the, the hardcore band, you know? Definitely. And there is a... There's a competitive streak to metal in the way there is a competitive streak to horror. You know, in the, in oh, yeah. yep. everyone wants to find, as you say, the raw, real thing. They want to find the thing that gets under the skin and pulls back the fingernails. You know, it happened with the Blair Witch, you know, all oh, these man, yeah. kinds of things. And yeah, anybody home very much trembles on that nerve. Um, basically, I think by now, just by you talking for five minutes, we've terrified a swathe of my audience. <laughs> And I like to think that people lying in bed listening to this as well. Um, and, and there's one line. Yeah. I'm going to quote this with no attached question. It's just a line that I want my listeners to hear. Because there's a, a part in this book where you, you, you say, quote, it's all a blissful, boring illusion of suburbia and civility until the first stranger's footsteps on the hardwood floors at midnight. And I thought that captured exactly the paranoia that, that this book evokes yeah and we like we all have those moments at night right you might not even have hardwood floors or a house you know you might just be mm-hmm. renting an apartment like i am we'll still sometimes be in our bed like in my case i've gotten in a bad habit of right before bed i just binge youtube videos for like an hour and i just end up even more exhausted in the morning as a result of it but like you're you're in that like sort of i need to get 
into that space where I'm about to fall asleep. It's then when you're super vulnerable and there'll be moments and times, even now where I'm like, you hear a noise or even in the back of your mind, you just think like, oh yeah, I know. Did I lock that door? Or was that, was that my roommate? Was who, who, that noise? That is that actually my roommate or is that someone in, someone in that? Like there's all these different things. These like neuro, almost neurotic, uh, paranoid. There's the right term. Paranoid, um, thoughts, but it's because it's that element of vulnerability, right? Like when we are at ease is when we're most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. My wife is um, utterly terrified of this entire concept to the point that when I told her what this book was about, she made me promise I wouldn't tell her anything about it. Um, <laughs> because she, you know, she spends every night asking me three or four times if we lock the back door. That coupled with the fact that I've got hypnagogia, so I hear weird things as I'm falling asleep, made the last week of our married life great fun. Did she read it? She, no, no, she hasn't read not. it. She would, she would never read it in a million years. And I think if I tried to tell her about it, she would leave me. So, um, yeah, we'll leave that there. Yo, that's that's fair. Like, I, I feel like just to, as we are, we are all absorbing so much content whether it be movies books and endless months you know tweets online whatever we don't have to actually engage with everything right like it i really truly believe that if there's a book or something that truly scares you truly unless you're daring yourself and challenging yourself there's no need to actually do it right mm -hmm. like i i like look at that sometimes where like i think no the what you just said there kind of made me just like it kind of triggered me a little bit not in a negative way but just remind me of it wasn't even anything on my end in terms of like anybody home, but I remember seeing something on like one of the social media platforms about someone almost criticizing a book because it was like completely getting under their skin without even them, you know, having begun to read it. And I'm like, well, if it's not for you, that's okay. Just walk, just let it go. You know, like it's totally fine. And I would suggest that for your wife. Do not, she does not need to read this book. <laughs> you could, you could like paraphrase it or fingers crossed if, and you know, I can't really talk about it, but if like, you know, it ends up on the actual screen, the way the book talks about, um, yeah, can't really talk about any about that yet. But, um, if it ends up in that form, there will probably be more people that would be dare, you know, would dare themselves to actually view it and experience it. But, um, you don't have to, is what I'm saying. Like I, I, I compel anyone that has even the most, it, it, even a little iota of curiosity about what what's going on behind closed doors and what you know what goes into the differences because there are differences between home invasions it's not just the mortifying version that i showed show in this book um you said over a little bit earlier like it's not just a smash and grab yeah there, so home invasions are it, it, the term home invasion is used for any kind of like you know actual invasion of home but there is a very bold line between the type of home invasions that are meant for power and the type of home invasions that are about desperation and those smash and grab robberies. Those are those ones truly acting in desperation. Yeah. There's also a reason why um, in this book that the, the, the casing is that re a lot of that came from my own re actual research, like true research. Um, and it wasn't because I was like, I want to write a book about torturing some like family or whatever. No, it was more because I was a desperate homeless person casing houses in a rich area of Florida um, never did it, but got really fucking close. Um, but I was in the realm of smash and grab desperation, right? Now, in anybody home, it's the opposite end. It's the more, you know, I'll use the Tate murders again as an example. It's about the power of taking away what is usually someone's, you know, like mm -hmm. their sanctuary, their safe yeah. space. 
it's second to the spree and the spree killings and the serial killings, the invasion of home. It's a power dynamic. Yeah, there's a kind of malignant intelligence behind it. It's not just, you know, it, it, it's not random or freeform. It, 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 and, and it's that malignancy that makes it so frightening. The idea that someone has put some time and some consideration voluntarily into your suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, that is, that is, how do you even begin to combat that? And like, what goes, what goes on in that person's yeah. mind to yeah. want to do that? Yeah. Let's dive deeper into the book here because there's a lot of yeah. interesting stuff that I don't think we've fully made the listener aware of. So you just mentioned that actually, and it's, it's an interesting aside because I, I did read somewhere that this book was inspired to whatever degree by, as you said, your own experience as someone, you know, on the, on the other side of this divide, someone thinking about these things. Mm-hmm. Obviously it's a personal question, but I do wonder, did that play into you choosing to tell this story from the invader's perspective because that's obviously the most immediate and striking aspect of this that it's you know the victims are merely characters the narrating intelligence is the evil (laughs) yeah uh it was definitely conscious yeah i mean when i initially got sort of like the nugget of the uh, idea that then became anybody home it was pretty well rendered in the sense that I wanted to take a couple steps forward into that meta fourth wall breaking narrative that happened in funny games, for instance. And yes, funny games was definitely, uh, it's definitely a very cl- a close inspiration, at least initially for this book. Um, but then I, of course, you know, like any, anything that one works on for an extensive period of time, you start to personalize some element of it. You put your own mm-hmm. experiences into it, even if it's not outright your own experiences you you live it yeah i definitely consciously use those experiences because i had enough distance from them between the time i've actually started writing this and the time i was living it to that to use it um it was sort of just like one like knowing how to ride a bike or knowing these random nuggets so that you get from a wikipedia wormhole you know like it becomes like back in the back in the mind knowledge and that's what informed the book but yeah to to kind of just expose a little bit of my own experiences with home invasion i was it was myself and two other quote-unquote i guess band members we were i was this hard-headed uh high school student that ended up by virtue of a lot of conflict between myself and my parents i ended up sort of on my own drifting uh, with nothing more than the honda civic that i had you know saved up and purchased um living in that and living in band spaces and stuff like that. Cause I was, I was basically uh, trying to get my shit together with music back in the time when I thought I could become a musician. And I was swept up in the uh, Florida hardcore slash hard rock scene. And it was, it was very healthy and there are a lot of bands, but you know, the band that I was in happened to be struggling and we're trying to, you know, get, get some budget going, uh, you know, making ends meet doing day labor gigs off Craigslist and, I was uh, half the time I was sleeping in my Honda Civic and half the time I was sleeping in our little shitty band space, which is essentially glorified like garage uh, back of the garage kind of thing of one of my, my guitarist's uh, parents' house. Um, Yeah. So like, we're trying to scum it all together. And then this is like, we're not talking months. We're talking like years, like three years Mm. of trying to get our shit together. And it's very much that like you end up in a bubble of time, not realizing that you're wasting away your life, waking up every day, doing a mixture of desperation in terms of trying to, to, to to, to fill your pockets with enough change to eat. But also we were all all drinking 
a shit ton as well and slowly losing ourselves to med- medicating our, our situation while at the same time trying to figure out easy ways to make some cash because the idea was you know we got good music we just need to really get like our demo going we really need to get some more shows we couldn't get some shows because we we're always so fucked up um yeah so like it went from pickpocketing and failing at that to trying to gamble um online poker to like all that stuff uh, gambling um boxing matches to eventually driving around in, in Windermere, Florida, um, looking at houses. Our idea was, you know, these people have insurance, whatever. We can just, you know, we'll find some place. They all had like security system uh, decals and we they looked like impossible to, impenetra- to penetrate, impossible to break in uh, domiciles. But we quickly found out that that wasn't the case. A lot of the, you know, just by tapping on the windows when no one's home to, to even trying a doorknob, people leave their doors unlocked. People don't turn on the security systems. So we started getting ideas and we got very close to one. I remember being in the bushes in the dark at two something, two or 3 a.m. Uh, it Florida, so sweating my ass off in all black. Uh, I was in the, uh, there's three of us. One was a lead. So basically he would go at first and make sure everything that we had planned is as it should. Like they were, either, they were supposed to not be home. Um, cause we just wanted to smash and grab. Um, and this is after we cased the house for two weeks. I remember being in those bushes and him taking twice as long and then him just rushing past saying, no, we got to go. And sure enough, that's that, that hesitation that we all had that night, it could have, could have ruined our lives because the following morning, um, two cops at our front door asking about where we were last night. Cause someone identified the plates on the vehicle that should have been a concealed vehicle, right? We thought we had hid the vehicle enough. Uh, anyway, that was like an experience that stuck with me. Truly, it was like a decade later when I started writing this book, and it that, it, that informed this experience, this the experience of writing the book and, yeah, and yeah. the understanding of what a home invasion is and what it takes to invade a home, and just how that illusion is truly an illusion. I don't care how much security you have, because even if you have that security system, someone who wants to get in is going to get the hell in. That is interesting, though, that you have at least some tenuous understanding of being on the other side of the door because right uh, permit me to be a bit long-winded traditionally right horror fiction that gives the villain a narrative voice it tends to try to empathize or even redeem their behavior you know right we're back to frankenstein you know and i mm-hmm. often think that's because storytellers are uncomfortable with spending so long inside a really aberrant perspective totally and i find it interesting then that having come to this book with some experience as you say of of the the desperate the desperation behind a more crude home invasion i find it interesting that you then projected your story into something completely different which these villains we have no empathy for them we know nothing about them we cannot really rationalize their behavior um and i'm, I'm interested in that gap between because i would have expected mm. from what you've just told me for you to write at least one character who is perhaps doing it for a, a morally gray reason and you can get kind of understand but you don't you just go straight in the line these are monstrous individuals who are doing right. it for no reason we can understand 
So yeah, it, it's very, very much calculated into why they are so unlikable and like the fact that they can't even be likable because both victims and invaders, I've built them more like NPCs in a video game. Rather yes, than, they're, they're kind of devices rather than characters. Right. The only character in, that uh, that's truly a character, and by, you know, again, the definition of character, people tend to make it like a living being. But as we've seen in, in Area X, you know, from Jeff Vandermeer's mm. uh, series to even that movie Seven and that city, uh, the, the setting, the actual location, something inanimate, Solaris, right, the, mm. the planet, they can be characters too. And when I wrote Anybody Home, I wasn't interested in creating any sympathy or empathy for any living, you know, the invaders or the victims. They are characters in the only, in, in the scenario that houses the, the real character, which is the home invasion, which is the act. I was really interested in exploring it in a way where readers can drop themselves in for better or for worse. I mean, you can't actually navigate in an interactive way through the scenario, but I tried to do it. You know, I wanted to do it in your head a little bit, a lot, you know, depending it's results may vary, but I remember back when I was initially note, writing notes for this, I like wasn't as coherent about calling them NPCs in a video game at, at that point. I literally wrote down it's funny games and I forgot, like, I usually do this with all my stuff before I actually start writing. I, like, do a sort of, like, a, a, an elevator pitch. Blank meets blank meets blank, you know, like, three, uh, just because I like the number three. And I, I forget what the third one was, but it was the the elevator pitch to myself was Funny Games meets a sports commentary track meets, again, I forgot the third one. <laughs> and that's that initially was what I wanted to do. I wanted to read, like, like, like you're right there, like, you the character is is essentially you you know like yeah. you are the character you're the scenario you're the home invasion as you're reading this you are the character that and like there are people early responses to the book people are like i hate all the characters in this i'm like well you're looking at the wrong there is no there are no characters in this except for that one character that essentially is you you are the character you know yeah yeah i get that and that's interesting talking about the act as the character because that that this is a difficult thing to ask. I'm not sure I have the vocabulary for this, but that complicating of different levels of narrative, you know, the action and the character, which are normally two entirely separate positions. If you, if you take a structural approach to a book, you know, they, mm -hmm. they become, they collide in this and the, I'm struggling and I'm going to basically ask you a question now for my own benefit, really, yeah, because I'm still struggling with aspects of this book to ensure I've really grasped what you're getting at. So this dual element of this story is this twin concept of the camera and the performance and to a lesser extent, this idea of the, the cult, as you call them, which I'm assuming is the, the audience, essentially, the, the eventual yes. audience, you know, or at least the people in the zeitgeist who are aware of the the um, the home invasion trope. They're aware of, of that subgenre. Um, but when it comes to this camera and the performance, the, the two words we see again and again. And the performance I kind of get, the performance is the enacting of the home invasion. And each one is different. Each one is a different performance with a different stage. I get that. Mm -hmm. With the camera, though, a lot of the time, it seems to suggest this kind of ephemeral sense of observation, an abstract lens for this implied eventual audience. But then there are sections in which the mother of the family is actually physically watching 
elements of the performance, in quotation marks, that have been filmed by the camera on the TV. So can, forgive my confusion. Can you talk a little bit about the, the camera as a concept or a literal thing in this story? Because I think I probably confused the hell out of the listeners with my <laughs> attempt there. No, it's, it's totally cool. Um, so we'll start, let's start with the, the other side of it. The cults, you got that right. Yeah, mm. the cult is essentially just any interested party in the act of whatever that it's, it could be the armchair investigator watching some true crime thing, right? Like it's anyone who is essentially quote unquote, getting off, getting obsessed about something that happened to someone else, usually on that elm of deviance criminology and, and essentially, you know, emotionally benefiting from it. Even if it's a, like you're, you're disgusted by it, you're still sort of entered, hence you're entertained. And there's, so on the, on the, on the other end, the, the big confusion, it's, it is meant to be confusing because I'm essentially using the camera as a floating lens for two specific things. I'm using it for the sense of the attention span of the modern day, the attention span of anyone and everything. It, the, the act of when you do something, who is watching and what and whether or not anyone's interested. Um, this idea that our days on this planet and everything that we do because of just how connected we are with, to our phones, to the to G- GPS, to social media, to technology. No, I mean, no one cares if you're just like taking a shit there. No one's going to be like watching you take a shit unless actually, no, no, there, there's, there's <laughs> fucking scat porn and stuff like that. But anyway, but the point is like the, the camera is the proverbial uh, absurdity of our modern day at both attention spans and the sort of mode of un- being unable to ever be alone in our, the act and, and the motivation of what we are doing. So whether you're, hacking into some site or tweeting something out or taking a shit or invading a house or speeding down some highway, you know, 15 to 20 miles over the speed limit, something somewhere technology in terms of technology, in terms of an actual lens, a, a, a figurative lens in quotes, you know, is capturing that. And all it takes is an audience that's interested and has the power enough to care enough to explode that into something that is now a performance, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, yes. So it, it's a, it's very much a psych sociological concept. And I don't remember where I, there, there is an action. It might be symbolic interactionism. I forget on the sociological end, but the, since SI is essentially this idea that everything that we do and every, every single aspect of meeting is built on symbols. So the symbol of the camera lens is already something that you, the reader, understands. But in the book, I intentionally try to reinvent that and make you confused because I want it to essentially reset itself numerous times, countless times throughout the book because it's still anchoring itself to the same inherent uh, symbol, which is the attention span, the act of validation, the act of doing and the technology and the world around us just a, a hair away from giving a shit enough to make it something quote unquote valid, you know, mm-hmm. instead of just some me eating a candy bar after this or some shit, or me going to the bar and tip, sipping a drink in the corner while I read, no one cares about watching that, but what the, the proverbial camera is still watching the sense that someone, someone there could easily pick up their phones and take a photo. I might be captured on some security camera. There's we're, we're only a half step away from, if I did something or someone did something in a very, in a normal situation to blow up into something that is now essentially cultural commodity, you know, something that is at least now a performance to then be digested by others. Right. 
I'm glad you said that it's intentionally confusing because I yes. was thinking I thought I'm not this dumb normally. Well, I mean, when I say intentionally confusing, I, I definitely I, I didn't hold back. Is what I said. Like I knew I, it's it's something that maybe you're not supposed supposed to do as a writer because you, yeah, you could push back um, at, at the reader sometimes, but narr- when you're really trying to write a narrative like in the truest sense and the very like, you know, plot heavy narrative that moves. Um, you're not supposed to do something like, like what I did there. Like mm-hmm. that's very much like a, you break the rules kind of thing, <laughs> but honestly, everything, every rule is made to be broken. And like, uh, if we were out in a craft talk, I would talk about how way back in the day when I first started writing, I was, I was obsessed with the Ulipos, which were these, were these authors like Italo Calvino, who wrote this book called if on a winter's night, a traveler, uh-huh. um, yeah, they basically all tried to break all the different rules in a math, almost in a mathematical sense, and they created different conceits. Uh, Jorge's Perec wrote the infamously wrote this book called A Void or like A Space Void, where he gave himself the conceit of writing a, a, a novel without the use of the letter. I think it was E. Letter E, letter yeah. E. yeah, yeah. And so I definitely d- dropped a lot of that kind of methodology that kind of approach to, of experimentation in anybody home because again i was trying to write remember we go to go back to the the elevator pitch to myself i was trying to create this commentary track kind of thing where i was trying to bring the reader in and by confusing you so it's all i'm almost kind of making you forget what's happening on the page and getting lost in it for a second so then i can proverbially steer you around like say a uh, like God of War does in its levels, right? Like where you're going through any 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 narratively driven video game, they do these sequences to essentially direct you through a world. When in reality, you're on rails. So I'm I'm inherently on you're inherently on rails because this is a, a it's a page. You're going in one direction, but like that confusion that that I'm talking about, then I hope it's never enough to like push most people away to like put the foot the book down. But the idea was to to make it almost be like a palate cleanser of of like just being being kind of like discombobulated a little bit mm-hmm. so that I can now move you into another thought nugget or another actual scene because it does take its time and, and again another intentional thing about the book is I give you that time to sit in it and well we'll of- talk about that shortly yeah because I have a yep. question on that but to come back to this experimental thing because it's right in my wheelhouse or it's what my wheelhouse used to be whereas I've kind of I've lost the knack for the getting quickly to grips with experimental fiction. I used to be really good at it because I spent years studying it. Hey. it, it, it you, you lose the language, you know what I mean? You lose the easy agility with it. Uh, you and I both, because anybody at home, I wrote that in 2015. And right. I immediately put it I immediately put it on the back burner because I thought it was a piece of shit. And then I went on and wrote another book called My Pet Serial Killer. And then I ended up writing a bunch of literary fiction. And then during the pandemic, uh, during lockdown, Christoph and Lisa at Clash, I got on a Zoom call with them because they were pitching me a book idea and they wanted me to write it. And, you know, that's infinitely humble, like humbling already. Mm-hmm. So like I was like very relaxed and like very like hyped in the, during the conversation. And I mentioned offhand that I had this other back burner novel that maybe they'd, if you want to check it out, whatever. And Christoph was like, yeah, send it. Um sent it a couple weeks later he wanted to buy it you know so it was very much an older version of me too like i i can't write that way anymore either you know like well i read an interview with you recently you talked about feeling like you were born a little out of time that you kind of long for the 90s when there was more appetite for this kind of experimentation oh yeah does that still stand 
I don't know. We all grow as writers. I'm definitely mm-hmm. writing stuff that's that's different now. It's horror. It's I would say it's more like it's definitely sociological leaning horror, um, speculative horror that I'm writing right now. But uh, I do inherently want that experimentation, that innovation to always be there because that just that's just going to be more interesting for all of us, right? Like even if we don't vibe with the thing that we pick up, it's cool that someone was able to achieve this this narrative mode right like, like trying something different it's when we all get think when things get stale that that hurts at everything it hurts the the genre it hurts the act of writing it hurts everything so like i'm all about experimentation still always and i mean i might not i might get lazy and not be able to really tackle it the way i did because i'm like you uh i don't think i could read uh life of users manual or um, any like to bring back the Olivos, for instance, the only one I could probably still read are probably some of Calvino's uh, like Invisible City, Invisible Cities. He was a little bit more gateway to to the experimentation. Um, yeah, see, that's before my area of expertise because I'm much more eighties post structural. Oh, okay. Stuff yeah, like yeah. that. But yeah, it, it does feel like that era of ready experimentation has passed in horror. A little bit. I mean, you've still got Tremblay mm. knocking out Paul Bearer's Club. You know, I know that. So awesome. Stephen Graham Jones is yeah. is doing new things with every book he does. He's you know deconstructing, and interrogating, and stuff. But they are still performing those acts within what looks on the surface like a conventional novel. Do you know what I mean? Whereas huh. it, it feels like ending in about two thousand and three. It feels like the, the the two decades before that were marked by real experimentation in horror. You know, Kathy Kolja, yeah. Daniel Lewski with House of Leaves, you know, everything Bretis and Ellis did. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would like to recommend a book to you, actually, having read this, because it made me think of a book that I think so few people are even aware of, let alone read. Mm-hmm. It's a book I read years ago, and it, it really struck me as as something that you would like, even though the, the topic couldn't be any more different. It's a book called Frank by an author called R.M. Berry. Okay, never. I don't think I've ever heard of it, yeah. It, it's billed as an unwriting of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, okay. And the, char- okay. the character is Frank Stein, who is a distant cousin of Gertrude Stein. <laughs> hmm. So it already becomes that kind of language linguistic thing because of Gertrude Stein. But it's basically a book where just as in, when you were talking about the, 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 the camera in your story and how it has a multiplicity of meanings. Yeah. The text in R.M. Berry's Frank has a multiplicity of meanings because at any one time, the text is indivisible from the monster which is something that, you know, Mary Shelley herself did, my hideous progeny, the book and the monster were always the same, but it does it in an incredibly like complex postmodern way. I think you get a real kick out of it. Yeah, no, I'm like, I'm making a mental note and I might have you email or like remind me at the end of this. Uh, I have to push back on one thing though, actually not really push back, but just, I'm very curious now. You So you don't think people are being as experimental because, all right, I will, I will preface this by kind of, this is how I see where I fit. If I fit at all anywhere, I don't really see what I am as anything more than like, I am definitely writing in the transgressive speculative space. Like I, I guess I have trouble categorizing, but when I like a lot of the, the horror that I've encountered recently, they are doing really interesting new things, you know, like they, maybe they still, I guess what I'm like asking you is like, are they, are you talking about like what they're essentially doing underneath 
the the the, the plot devices and the various uh, structural devices, what they actually are doing with the narrative, it's all still the same. Or are you saying overall, it's sort of like we we don't see that anymore? Because like you mentioned, Kathy Koja, Dark Factory, she's doing all kinds of crazy cool stuff with that one, and she's she's continuing to reinvent every every almost every single book she writes. She's reinventing herself. You know. Well, um, I haven't read Dark Factory, despite Josh Malaman's entreaties that I do. Um, you got then you definitely should. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I really think there's like a we're having a maybe we're having just a moment that's starting to happen. But like, I feel like I as I've started to by virtue of pr- promoting anybody home a little bit and, uh, you know, interacting more with people that go into the darker space and like really it's been amazing. Cause like, I, I'm like, why haven't I been hanging out over here for, you know, in the last couple of years? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, um, I, I suppose to answer you, to kind of answer your pushback, even though it's completely valid, I suppose what I'm talking about really is you don't seem to see anyone near the same formal experimentation that you did in the 80s and 90s. Right. Oh, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think in, in terms of content and particularly point of view, yeah, I think I think we're more diverse and more experimental than ever, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But I, So I think I'm probably getting too fixated on what I think of as experimentation, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's still – I've probably still got, even despite all of this that I do, I've probably still got far too vanilla a view of, of what horror – is being, no, you know, I, I think no, you're right. That, no, I understand now what you were saying. Like there, yeah. it's true. We, I will definitely agree with the fact that that formal, you know, with the capital F experimentation is a dying thing. Yeah. And it's, it is kind of sad. I understand why, because attention spans in general are starting to fade, you know, get smaller and smaller and smaller. And even when you're trying to experiment, you're not going to be experimenting in the same way in the same space. But yeah, you're, we're not, we're probably not going to see, the the stuff that you we saw in the 90s even like when J, you know the trossy exhibition that jg jg ballard wrote like mm-hmm. there, if we see something like that it'll come out on a small press and it'll be unfortunately relegated to like a hundred people reading it you know yeah. like it's 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 unfortunate but i think it comes down to a lot of just uh, uh what it asks and demands of readers and a lot of readers not being able to kind of connect that way you know Indeed. Well, I mean, and let, let's talk. Let's talk about demanding of readers because you, you mentioned a moment ago uh, about working in the transgressive space, and that's mm-hmm. a word that I haven't used, but it's definitely the right word for this book. So, let's talk in a little detail about violence because, weirdly, considering that this is a horror podcast, I rarely get chance to. <laughs> <laughs> the violence in anybody home. All right, it's not as graphic as something, let's say, American Psycho, right? Right. But compared to the vast majority of stuff that I've read over the last two years, it's it is striking. I think the only thing that's come close to it or rivaled it is Eric LaRocca's "Things Have Gotten Worse." So, um, yeah. Unless it's something I've forgotten, you know. But yeah, the level uh, the level of violence is just really up there. Uh, I mean, there's one. I'm not going to spoil anything, but just to titillate listeners, there's one section involving a tongue and a table, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and and distinct from that, the words power drill have taken on a more sinister meaning for me since reading your book. Um, I suppose, were you determined to transgress? Were you out to sicken or repulse the reader for its own sake, or is there something more going on? So, you know what's funny? Like, that scene that you just described, I didn't, when I was writing it, I thought it was just, like, almost 
it was so over for me it was so over the top it was like funny it was just like mm-hmm. this is absurd like to the point of true absurdity uh the scariest or like the most disturbing parts and transgressive parts for me were the build up to that like all that the the, the whole so-called like really gruesome stuff and violent stuff that people have so far responded to the most is like in that, that portion of the book. I did that as sort of like the follow through. That's like, all right, built it up, built the true transgression, the true, like under your skin, depravity, fixation on human humans, uh, obsessions with, um, uh, attention, validation, and just the nature of, entertainment and what, why we are entertained by what we are entertained. All of that was kind of the way I see it structurally, it happens. Most of it happens all and builds all in the first 60% or, or no, maybe 40%. And then mm-hmm. the, the meat, the meat of it where it's all like, you know, then it gets quote unquote violent and transgressive to, uh, to readers. Anyway, uh, for me, that was just like the icing. That was the, like the, it, was, it just, it's almost like, you know, being ahead in, in some sport game like you're already like winning you already completed the the mission and now you just want to make sure and ensure that it all the all the setup is is pulled off correctly uh that's what that was so i didn't even find it violent i thought it was like um it was it was like dark humor or something you know like and i almost of the book didn't quote unquote scare me or didn't feel very transgressive after a certain point it was really during the the part where like the, the part about casing and, and the initial mm-hmm. scoping of the house and the building of the, what's your motivation. And then maybe the final, final chapter when everything is all said and done. Those were the moments where I was, I would say are transgressive. They're focusing because they're, because it's, 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 it's turning the lens now back onto the reader and the actual, not even the act, but the response to the act, you know? So mm-hmm. this maybe is a long winded way of saying, I didn't think it was that violent. You know, I thought it was like almost like so ridiculous that it's like roll the eyes. Like, of course, I guess, yeah, done. Now they got to, now you got to do the chopping of the, you know, whatever. And you got to kill that person off. Like it's almost like, Oh, this is part of like playing by the rules again, because you know, at some point someone's going to get cut the fuck up or something. Yeah. So I totally get that, that idea that this is back to the rules. This is back to like what we expect from horror. I get that totally. Um, and I'm on the record as saying that I think American Psycho is the funniest book I've ever read. Exactly <laughs> yeah. because of what you're saying, that it's so over the top that it can, yep. you, you have to laugh, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, I didn't get that from this, this, there were scenes in it that really made me feel nervous about what was huh. going to happen genuinely. And that, that's a compliment. It interests me because you you hold off on the violence for a long time. So yeah. there's a lot of nasty anticipation, like weapons and tools being flourished and put down in front of people and stuff, but nothing happens. It's this 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 long suspension of, as you said, casing and you know, putting plans into operation and stuff. And then a good halfway into the book, there's this throwaway line that's like hidden mid-paragraph mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where the 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 narrator, the instructor says okay now go torture some victims yep and the way you write it it almost feels flippant it also feels like this real release of tension both for the invaders and weirdly for us as readers that actually you know that only not only does that make sense that's what i was trying to explain earlier like the tension the transgression like the thing that was to me that's quote-unquote violent was what i was doing Mm -hmm. to set it up and so when all that stuff got like 
actually violent in, I guess, the physical sense, which is you said so eloquently is like, that's the where the tension kind of like, it, it sort of paid off, right? I I thought the pro- profane and the transgression was the buildup and ensuring that it paid off meant that it had to get that kind of physical violence. You know, it had to, it had to meet its mark of expectation yeah. uh, for the reader because home invasion, I'm sending you up. I'm giving you all these images of a house dark with, you know, people hiding in, in their various vantage points watching. I'm having uh, the power, you know, the power drill, all these different images and different setups. And it's like all about hitting, making sure that I get a strike, you know? Right. Well, I'm using a bowling reference, even though I never bowl is like beyond me, but um, that's what I was trying to say earlier. Yeah. Like that's, that was the intention. Um, but to, to the get for, I guess for me personally, and again, I like what, the way I view the author and the book in general, like just in general, like the author never gets to truly experience the book after they wrote it. Like they only, there's only one person that gets to experience a book a certain way. And it's that author, but on the other end, they never get to experience the way a wider majority of people get to experience their books because they they see it a different way. So what you're what you experience, I can never experience. So, but from my end, I saw the that end where the, the the part that really gets people apparently and got got you is sort of like yawn. Okay, yeah, I get it. It's supposed to happen. You know, like that's that's how it felt for me. Like I had to ensure that all the tension and everything I built up going into it that might be quote unquote boring for some readers or they're like, oh, I guess I have to. I just need to figure out what's going to happen. So turning the pages anyway, and then they get to the quote unquote meat of it for them, which is the for me just ensuring that it happens and playing a little bit more by the rules. Yeah, that's your that's the the experience of many others. Um, I have my own. I guess I can only I only experience the way I wrote it. So so right, that is an incredibly interesting concept in relation to this book. And I'm going to have to think on my feet now because I'm going to try and put together two fairly complex thoughts. So you you talking about the author's understanding of the of the text and the reader's unlimited multiplicity of understandings of the text, right? That that goes back to a theory called Death of the Author by Roland Barth. Which oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly what Roland Barth basically said, he was a kind of French philosopher. What he basically said was that once the book is out there, the author no longer exists as a subject because, you know, the, the reader brings their own opinion and their own baggage and their own experiences to a text. And therefore every text becomes different in the act of reading. And, you know, yep. it's a mo- lot more convoluted, but that's the boiled down layman's version of it. Now, I kind of go along with that to a degree. Mm-hmm. But in this regard, in this particular book, that gets complicated because you are actually addressing the reader over and over again. And in my eyes, trying to really force us to confront one particular thing, which is what's my motivation for yep. reading such depravity. Over and over, you repeat this phrase, what is your motivation? And at first, it seems like the instructor is asking the invader, but increasingly, it yep. becomes the book or the author asking the reader what their motivation is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems like it's, it's a dual question there. First of all, can you talk about that a bit? And also, the, the flip side is that that then makes that whole thing about the author having one take and the reader having another take more difficult because you're giving us what you think we should think or what we should worry about. 
Okay, so uh, so every author has their certain things they just like get off on, like they just fucking love it. They're like fascinated by it, and that's this is where we get into the point where like I I can directly point to what you just said is like this is the kind of stuff that I love. I love the contextuality of texts. I love a narrative that bends in five different ways. I love structure. I love the uh, playing of structure. That that's the kind of experimentation I guess I start I've started to like like go into over the years even more so since uh, the writing of Anybody at Home. The idea that it's like it's metaphysical but like to the root of metaphysical meta, the metaphysical um but in the case of this i would i would comment on your comments to go back to a video game essence um so a game designer creates a scenario no matter how open-ended to at least still drive the players in certain ways direct the player in certain ways and there's a concept of emergent gameplay wherein they create more so rules these these un, these invisible things that feel that, that still keep everything under control that happens in the game, but and they can they kind of give you a, uh, the player a sandbox to then mm-hmm. play in, but they feel like they're in absolute control, even though they really are are pressing the uh, they're doing sequences that are predetermined or at least somewhat built to be predetermined. Um, you know, like a game like Tetris, it may seem simple, and uh, yet it's procedurally generated in the sense that those those blocks they fall down at random times. They've given you X amount of blocks, like types of blocks, but they're infinite combinations. That's emergent gameplay. Now, now, like you know, a fighting game, like Street Fighter Third Strike. Here, I'm like nerding out on games. I, I swear, I'll get back to my point. Um, <laughs> Third Strike, it's a fighting game where ideally you're mashing buttons and doing little like button sequences, but they built it such that every single game, can, every single move can be parryable and reacted by. So then now they gave you an emerging gameplay scenario where although there are all these rules and essentially there's a narrative being played, um, the players can can kind of create their own. Now with anybody home, my approach was to do that as much as possible in a narrative sense where the, what's your motivation? Yes, it bends and, and buckles and and morphs depending on the scenario. The scenario itself, although in, in, in its core, it's a simple thing. It's a it, there's a home invasion, right? It, 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 there's mm-hmm. the this planning and pull off of a home invasion. But within that canvas, I then I tried to weave the narrative in a metaphysical sense throughout it, in a sense that would be sort of like an emergent gameplay scenario for narrative. So we think we have the luxury of choice, but in fact, we are being forced to confront our own role in our complicity in reading this book. That's the word right there, complicity. Like who? Okay. It's about understanding the complicitness of of being someone that is digesting something like this and what you are getting out of it and why you are feeling the way you're feeling. Right. I'm I'm not. I'm not asking you to like you, meaning the the. The reader, right? I'm not asking the reader to to fully answer that, right? I just want you, the reader, to think more about why you react to what it is that you're reading or do or experiencing, or and why it entertains you, why it disgusts you. A lot of us we imbibe so much content and we react almost as if we are being fed the reaction, like you're supposed to feel this way now, feel this way, but why? You know, like what, why is, and, and like, why are we, are we just allowing, again, us is the, the royal us, like just the, the general person allowing narratives to just pull us through a thread. And then we, at the end of it, we're like, that was cool. That, that I love that, like, you know, very awesome action packed part. And that was really horrific over there. And oh, that love element that happened there. So it's, it's really taking more of an active role of understanding why it is you turn those pages, why it is you buy those books, why it is that you got that rise 
or were that disgusted or refused to even continue. So it, it, to come full circle, and, and we'll, we'll finish with this last point. Yeah. I got all of that in, in, in the reading that I was being asked those questions. And it, it's something that home invasion stories seem to be uniquely positioned to ask. Because I was thinking, like, Michael Haneke, with, who made Funny Games, oh, yeah. he does the same thing in, in a visual sense. Because, you know, for those who haven't seen Funny Games, there's all kind of fourth wall breaking things where, like, the character... Early on, a character winks at the camera after a particularly horrible scene. And then there's a whole bit where they rewind the tape um, and the film rewinds and makes you watch something again. And it's to continue asking this question of like, what's your, what is your side of this contract? Like as a viewer or as a consumer of this form of media, essentially why, what what's in it for you? And having written this book and having those questions clearly at the forefront of your mind, what does anybody home have to say about the often contentious idea of enjoying or being entertained by extreme transgressive horror yeah and like yo i don't know if i have a direct answer to that except that that was definitely what i was also thinking about like why did we have that torture porn moment in the early aughts right Mm. in film because it was almost like we were we meeting the, you know, like people were getting off on not really a direct horrific response to it, just more like gross out stuff. Right. It, I think, I think there's something to be said about how if we don't take a step back every once in a while to understand why we are reacting the way we are reacting to whatever it is that we're experiencing, you know, like in terms of books, film, mm-hmm we find ourselves lost in the weeds of that as well. And we stop understanding what even horror is, you know, like, and why we are reacting to say that serial, why, why still to this day, like Jason chasing down someone or like Texas Chainsaw Massacre can some can still the original one, right. The very first mm-hmm. one is still far more sinister and, and true, like truly hor- horrific versus like the gamut of, of torture porn, like hostile to, to, I don't know. I'm, I'm blanking all the other ones, but except for martyrs, well, that's a whole separate, separate conversation. <laughs> but um, I feel like if we were far more aware of, of what we're chasing, we might actually end up becoming better uh, and more astute consumers of this stuff, you know, and, and that can only be a good thing. I'm not arguing that we have to go back to roots or like be less gruesome. No. And, and in fact, maybe if we were more understanding of the, of why we are reacting and entertained by these things, we might make even something more grotesque and and in and, and ironically enough, maybe more profound. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. It's it's about having that relationship with the work, with the thing that you're being entertained by, and I I kind of feel like we're losing it at, at, at times. I call it checklist culture, where you know mm-hmm. your list of media, your Netflix to watch list becomes a a task to be accomplished rather than art to be enjoyed, you know, and it's the same with me with books because I have to read a book a week for this show. I, most of the time, books become as much a hurdle to be jumped as a thing to be enjoyed. And it's, that's why I'm taking a break towards the end of the year because I really want to reinstill the love of the art, you know, and not just do it as a means to an end because that's, that's not healthy. Let me push back at one thing. That you mm-hmm. said about the whole torture porn thing, and then I'm going to link it. So I, I can tell that you are quite keen 
to distinguish your book, which features scenes of torture, from the the the, 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 the you know context of torture porn. And it's because I think torture porn is a degraded term in culture. <laughs> like you said, you know, they are not frightening films. They are disgusting films, right? Yep, yep. That's everyone's opinion apart from mine. Because I find torture porns very frightening in the same way that I found your book frightening, right? Can you but, can you unpack that a little bit? Definitely. I, I may have said this on the show before. If I have, apologies, guys. You can fast forward three minutes. But I had a friend back in the academia days, um, Xavier Aldana Reyes. He's um, a lecturer at Manchester University, and he's written a lot on body horror in all its forms. He used to say that that torture porn was a amoral form of media, that it didn't have mm. any morality attached to it, that it, it existed purely, as you said, to disgust and through repulsion to return us to the primacy of the body, you know, to return us to the idea that, that we are physical meat sacks and that kind of underlying terror. Yeah, so there was no morality involved. My argument is that those films only work if they are highly moral, but the morality isn't inside the world. It's not a diegetic thing. It's not a morality that exists for the characters. It's a morality that exists for the audience. And the fear comes from watching things and then considering what and why you are watching and thinking, what the fuck does that say about me that I have sat down on a Saturday night with popcorn and watched Hostel Part 2? What does that mean for me? <laughs> yeah. Now, so they terrify me because I, I become very introspective and very kind of like, oh, God, kind of morally worried about myself. And that's a thing that you are directly promoting in your book, that sense of yeah, moral, yeah. moral complicity. So therefore, I do think your book is very much in the realm of torture <laughs> porn, but for very different reasons than you would expect, if that makes sense. No, I mean, no, this is great. Yeah, because like, I didn't see about that. I didn't see it that way. And you put, make a good, valid point. You know, um, yeah, no, I, I can see that. I can actually see that specifically for those sequences that we can't fully describe mm -hmm. without, of course, ruining it for listeners. But I, I don't, I think you, I think you're nailing something there. And I can only really vibe on the response on your, on your reaction to that, that it does kind of take shades of torture porn and I, maybe I was a little too hard on torture. Porn. Yeah. You kind of are right. Like maybe like just generally it's going through its new metal phase right now. Where <laughs> every, yeah. Torture porn is just like a gross thing. Yeah, Eli Roth is Fred Durst. <laughs> yeah. It, there you go. There's the quote of the whole, uh, the whole, the whole episode. <laughs> yeah. We seem to reach a natural, a nice natural stopping point there basically with me vomiting a thesis all over you. But, um, Let's let's talk about <laughs> other things we love. Can you can you recommend a book for my listeners and and tell us why we should read it? Yeah, um, well, I will. It's a two part and it won't be too long. I'm I can't say I'm recommending it, but I will mention that. So I was lucky enough to get a bound manuscript of we were talking about American Psycho earlier. Um, his new one, The Shards, uh, Ready Analysis' new book, The Shards. Um, apparently he had read a lot of it on his podcast, but I didn't listen to it, but I'm about like third in and don't, I, I would, I'm not, I can't recommend it yet, 
but I'm saying, you know, maybe if, if you're like, if he's like a, a bad name or something like that, no one wants to read him anymore. I mm-hmm. feel like there's some kind of pushback with him. Maybe try the shards because it's kind of like doing this weird, not metaphysical thing, but it's like it's exploring memory alongside the violence, uh, specifically like a very much like a serial killer happening in the behind the scenes. It's almost like what he did with Glamorama, but not as pretentious, at least so okay. far. But what I can recommend, it's actually a poetry collection. Uh, it's called Hoarders by, and it's by a poet named Kate Durbin. And um, each poem is essentially like five, six pages of a, a, a narrative poem wherein she juxtaposes the an, like an, an interview with a hoarder next to a parallel narrative of everything that they're hoarding. And um, although I'm fa- failing to remember the specific poem, I'll describe it uh, instead. But yeah, each poem uh, is, is a certain person. So like this person is a cat lady. So in italics it's sort of her it's snippets from her interview to by by whoever interviewed her and you kind of see the brokenness and the mental health issues and whatnot as next juxtaposed next to it uh descriptions of the hundreds of cats in her house including neglected cats cats a, a, a glimpse of a cat with a busted up eye that's just hanging from its eye socket a, a, a de- decomposing body slanted against of a cat slanted against a, a partially open door it's like these cutthroat descriptions of the actual hoarded items the physical the physical manifestation of the mental illness of that hoarder and she does that in in so many different ways across i think like 14 poems it's it's incredible stuff okay yeah well i think that's the first poetry collection that's been recommended so yeah definitely thank you very much and also thanks the head up heads up that um that british Nellis has got a new book out because i didn't know i'm so tempted to try and get him on the show because as problematic as he is i do feel like i could sort of give him quite a good run for his money um, listen, yeah. let, let me ask you the last question, because you alluded to this, I think, a little bit earlier. But, Michael, what truly scares you? Oh, um, people, actually. I would say the propensity for a person to do harm to other people is absolutely fucking horrendous. And I think, like, although I, we talked a lot about how one of my only fears is home invasions, who's at the heart of the home invasion? It's It's someone wanting to explicitly do harm to another person for very... Like, even if it's psychologically, you know, gray area stuff, they're still making the choice and they're still sort of looking at people as objects to, to benefit from. Like the fact that we can do that as a generally as a society and, and use people and, as objects and as, as just stepping stones is like the most fucking horrific thing ever. And that might be a pandering ass answer, but honestly, at the root of it all, I've thought about this just generally for like a while. Fucking... People are, are scary. Like just the, the the concepts of what a person can do to another person is mortally frightening. It's just frightening, frightening shit. Hard to argue with that. Talking about people doing bad things to people. I mean, there can be no greater fictional representation of that this year, I I think, than your book. Thanks, man. It's already getting a lot of buzz, and I'm sure it will get a lot more when it comes out and people can read the damn thing. So best of luck with it. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, and Michael, thank you for talking scared. Yeah, this is a great time. So that's the first time I've had a guest confess 
to almost committing a serious crime on this show. <laughs> Listening back, I should probably have been more shocked by the admission, but I think I'd been so overcome by the atrocities in Michael's book that I was primed to just accept whatever he threw my way. Yeah, let's be clear. This book is a cold-hearted kick to the crotch. I genuinely don't know what you'll make of it, because I'm I'm still not sure what I make of it, to be honest. I'm not even sure I fully understand it completely. And Michael's answer to my question about the camera being conceptual or physical, well, it hasn't really cleared things up for me. Then again, I'm not someone for whom the thought of home invasion holds much terror. I mean, I live in a row of terraces packed very close together with my neighbours. Trust me, I can hear them every night having a party, so I think they'd hear me being tortured at my kitchen table. We're out in the countryside, and we all have dogs, and, and very little worth stealing. I mean, my house is nearly 200 years old, so I'm far more concerned about the ghosts than the humans. But if you live in a big house out on your own, or a detached house on a suburban street, then, yeah, good luck reading this and not being deeply freaked out. I said in the intro that anybody home doesn't care about your feelings, and having spoken to Michael, I think it's quite obvious that he wanted to actively disregard the reader's feelings, that the book is a provocation in the truest sense. Now, I'm always up for that sort of thing, because I genuinely enjoy being shocked by art. My standard reaction to egregious nastiness in a story is to laugh in some sort of dark delight. I didn't laugh once when reading this because it walks this really fine line. It's appalling in parts, but always with enough restraint to stop itself tipping over into a joke. Michael said it's a dark comedy. I just don't read it that way. There are scenes of utter depravity, but they're related with such a clinical, dispassionate tone that it's hard to really know how to feel. The coldness both intensifies and neuters the terror. In that way, it, it is similar to Ellis's American Psycho, though Ellis's book is both more sickening and more ridiculously funny as a consequence. And speaking of Ellis, it's actually a good segue into something I want to discuss in regards to this show. So right there at the end, I talked about potentially inviting Brace and Ellis to come on this show. And, well... How do you feel about that? Because he is a problematic character. Would you be open to hearing that discussion? Would you see me as in some way betraying my progressive integrity? Even worse, would you see it as me helping promote dangerous rhetoric? It's a troubling thought for me as host of this show because I feel like within my tiny little niche... I do have a responsibility, and it's especially pertinent in the recent furore over Joyce Carol Oates' comments. As some of you may know, I'd arranged for Joyce to come on this show shortly before she made her comments about diversity in publishing, aka how hard it is for white people. The entire thing was obviously predicated on bullshit, and after much soul-searching, I cancelled that interview. Now, I want to be really clear about my thinking on this, because it, it matters to me that you know where I stand. I didn't necessarily cancel that interview just because I disagree with Joyce's comments, although of course I did. I'm very open to speaking to anyone about anything within reason, and I'll debate the point. My issue is that this show 
wasn't really built for that. I set out to make a podcast of nice conversations with nice people about their nasty books. So if I'd had Joyce Carol Oates on the show, I'd have either had to ignore her recent comments, which leaves me without any integrity, or I'd have had to set about interrogating her, which would mean completely changing the tone of how this show works and and what it's for. So I'm interested in what you think. So far, so good. All of the guests have been delightful, well-intentioned people. But how would you feel if I was to interview someone who perhaps clashes with my, and presumably your, philosophies on life? Now, this isn't about pandering. I'm not saying, oh, tell me what to do. I'll do what I feel is right. But you're a massive part of this show, guys. Without you, I'm just a lunatic talking at my office wall. So your opinions count, and please give them to me. You can reach me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or on Twitter and Instagram at talkscaredpod. Get in touch about that as well as about anybody home and home invasion. Are you terrified? Will you read the book? (laughs) Also, if you can leave a review, please do so. It does make all the difference and it puts a smile on my face. And once again, if you want more bonus content, including extra chat from Michael and a forthcoming deep dive into House of Leaves, sign up for Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or just click the link in the show notes. Now, this has been quite a long outro, but I suppose I had things to say. I'll be off now, only to return next week with something a little bit different in that space left by Joyce Carol Oates, and I'll be chatting to fellow horror podcaster Agatha Andrews all about her show, She Wore Black, and the world of gothic romance. Until then, lock your doors, check the alarm, check your closets, and listen for sounds from the attic. (laughs) Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.